tell us more about sturgeon and whether or not we could see them in Irish waters again someday, perhaps, and enjoying the caviar, <laughs> who knows, is Dr Ken Whelan, our fisheries scientist. Now, Ken, are you familiar with this specimen in the Natural History Museum? It's a long, long time ago since, I, since I've seen it. Yes, I've seen it. And I've seen live uh, sturgeon as well, quite a number of different species on the continent. So they're really fascinating creatures. As Richard was saying, these, you know, originally, these originated hundreds of millions of years ago. So these are quite prehistoric and they look prehistoric and they are prehistoric. But they're, the small baby sturgeon are to die for, the most gorgeous little creatures. They look as if they're not real. They're so pretty. But a lovely fish. Very, you think very they're nice. pretty? I think they're one of the ugliest fish I've ever seen. And the fact that people eat their eggs. <laughs> well, you know the way in cartoons very often a baby of some creature that grows up to be very aggressive looking and highly armoured or whatever can look really appealing. The tiny little sturgeon are gorgeous when they're in the ponds. I've only seen them in, in, in mm. hatcheries. But they're really pretty and they they kind of wob, wobble along on their on their pectoral fins, on the front fins. And they're really pretty. They're very nice. Now, what struck me about this one when I was in there a few weeks ago and noticed it first, well, my first time for seeing it, it's been there for several years, obviously, is the fact that it was caught in the River Liffey. Mm. Now, that blew my mind. I never knew we had sturgeon in our rivers, let alone in Irish waters. Yeah, well, thanks to a friend of mine, Declan Quigley. Uh, Declan did a very thorough job around 2014 in looking at the historical records in terms of sturgeon in Ireland. Because we have known, uh, because of the fact that we obviously have the sturgeon in the museum and they have sturgeon um, that are mounted in Wales and so on as well, we knew they were in our rivers, but we had very little information about where they occurred and where they were caught and so on. So he did a really thorough job at looking at all of the different records that were there. And it would seem as if they were encountered on a fairly regular basis over the years, at least, particularly in the sea, in sea fisheries. But some were indeed uh, also uh, encountered in our rivers. And importantly, we'll talk about this a little later on, the estuaries are really important in terms of the life cycle of the sturgeon. Aina, you're itching to get in there. Yes, indeed. Sturgeon. So when I knew we were going to be talking about them today, I went to my reference books. Not, of course, my science reference books, but my cookery recipe books. Oh, dear. And I have two wonderful cookery books. One is La Russe Gastronomique, which tells you about all the food of Europe. And I have another one, actually, which is very good. It's The North Atlantic Seafood by Alan Davidson. And Alan Davidson has several pages on the sturgeon, eating the sturgeon and all the rest of this. And he maintains that, in fact... It was all over the North Atlantic, the the, um, Irish Sea came up the estuaries, came up the rivers and in fact a huge one came up the Severn in the 1300s and Edward II decided it was a royal fish and no other diminutive person in his kingdom could eat it. All of the royal sturgeon, all of the sturgeon had to be given to the royal family and this has been the tradition. I think the last one was in 1966 and after that the palace decided they didn't want any more of them indeed and there's recipes for what they eat and what they taste like but the, the flesh isn't so good really. It was the, it was the eggs, it was the female eggs that were the absolute thing that they all looked out for. Why? Well, I mean, do you have to ask? Well, I am asking. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, the eggs, the eggs are tiny little fine eggs and they're salty and in a time way back in Mesolithic times when they would catch in these things, this was a whole area of salt and that they could that they could enjoy, that you couldn't keep them, you couldn't preserve them in those times so it was fresh stuff, everything had to be dried and kept for the winter but this was a source of lovely, lovely tasty food that they absolutely adored, whereas if you get bigger ones like paddlefish and lumpfish 
and salmon, they all have eggs too. But they're 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 bigger eggs and they're stuck together. They have this fine quality that they have. I've had a teaspoon of it once or twice, and you can you can certainly see the difference. But what I wanted to ask you, Ken, was do they swim in the river differently? They're huge fish, they can be two metres long. You're looking at something that's six foot, seven foot, swimming near the surface apparently. That they could see the fish, the old fishermen long ago making their way up the river and they were able to catch them and they were made extinct very early on in by monks and by people who lived on rivers because they could see the fish swimming up the, the waters. You've seen them, you said. Do they swim near the surface like that? No, the ones I've seen haven't been in the wild. But what I can do is I, I, I can... Uh, certainly, I uh, certainly can uh, think about uh, what I've seen on television in terms of some of the bigger sturgeon in Canada, the white sturgeon. And these are such enormous creatures that uh, going up a river system, they're going to make a massive great wake. And uh, you're, you're going to see the presence of the fish there. And once they reach any sort of shallow area in the river at all, they're going to be very clear. But I think there's a few very interesting facts that come out of what Declan has done for us in his very thorough review. These creatures, as you say, are enormous and the number of eggs they can lay, absolutely phenomenal. Anything from sort of 50,000 to millions of eggs. The eggs then stick to the bottom. So you need a relatively small number of fish. I'm only guessing, but you would probably need a relatively small number of fish um, for a modest population of these monsters to appear from time to time in the river. So it's not as if you had hordes of these creatures going upstream. I think what you had was probably small subpopulations of them that were in individual rivers and that would make them very susceptible to overfishing. They're very long-lived. The European sturgeon could live up to 60 years of age. As you say, they're, they're, they're very big creatures but because of the nature of their um, uh, anadromous uh, um, lifestyle where they come in out of the sea, lay their eggs in fresh water, the babies go back down to the estuaries and then go back out into the ocean. They're going, they leave themselves very susceptible, I think, to being exploited when they're coming in. Have they got a life cycle similar to salmon? No, it's it's very different, Derek. They're they're long-lived and they're very slow to mature. Just from memory, I think the females, I think they can be 18 to 20 years of age before they first lay eggs. Okay. Um, and uh, as I say, uh, when they do lay the eggs, then the, the juveniles um, seem to make their way then back downstream towards the estuaries relatively quickly over their first year. But they seem to hang around for quite a long time in the estuaries, which is actually uh, quite important from our point of view because... We are obliged under certain agreements, uh, conservation agreements now, to review whether or not we can actually try and reintroduce the sturgeon into Ireland. So that's that we we haven't got an obligation to do this, but we are asked to at least look at it. And there was a fantastic piece of uh, research done by a lady called Melissa van der Hayden, who was working with uh, Joanna O'Brien in what was GWIT which is now the um, Atlantic University in Galway. And she did a very thorough job looking very objectively about what would be required to try and let these monsters come back in. And then, of course, you have the next phase, and she makes this very clear at the end of her wonderful review. The next phase would be, what would the impact be? Are we really in a position where we can host these creatures again? Because nature absolutely abhors a vacuum and they haven't been with us for so long. Our rivers have changed, but it's a very interesting debate, I think. But presumably when they catch the sturgeon and take the eggs from them for caviar, that means the female is killed at that point, is it? Um, I think in the wild, they're certainly killed, I think, when, mm. they, when they take them out. But obviously in the context of 
reproducing the sturgeon, they have to keep the females alive for the second generation. But they may very well kill them if they want to use the meat. Mm. No, so but I what I wanted to ask you about that was when we have our salmon coming, and I know you said they're not salmon, but the female salmon come into our rivers, they, they, they actually spawn and then they die. Oh, but yeah. I mean, if the, if the sturgeon can live to be 60, 70, 80 years of age and they start spawning at 20, patently they leave all the eggs behind in the river and then they go back to sea and do they come in again or you know I mean oh, obviously sorry, they can do it more than, more than yeah, once yeah, obviously I see what you yeah, mean yeah. yeah no 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 they certainly do because they sp- and funny enough uh, maybe because it takes so much out of them but they only spawn I believe only every three or four years so that means that in their lifestyle let's say they start spawning at 20 just to make the maths easier and they die at 60 so that leaves us 40 years so maybe 10, 10 cycles of eggs but yes they would be uh, spawners again and again in fresh water. Yeah, but they spawn the eggs. The female spawns the eggs. They are the, the eggs. So then presumably males need to be nearby to put their sperm, their milk on top yeah. of that. So yeah. when this female goes up the river like a, like a cargo ship, is she attended by amorous males or are they equally large or is it the female, the cow as they call it in my cookery book, <laughs> is the cow the biggest of the fish more than the males? Well, very often in these situations it is the female that's bigger because uh, in reality the male needs to be producing very large quantities of milk which he can do with a smaller body and it also makes a lot more sense to have a good distribution genetically of males, particularly if you have a small population of fish. So so what I envisaged in the past was a small number of these massive great creatures, say, going up the shore. Uh, they would be attended, as you said, by some of the males. Uh, they would uh, lay the eggs and then head on back out to sea again. And as I say, the little juveniles then would feed away in fresh water. And after a small period of time, then they would head down towards the estuary and live there. Richard. Yes, the royal fish that you mentioned there, there there was a tradition that the first sturgeon caught had to be sent to the monarch. Now, in 1966, there was an interesting incident of Ballin and Skellig, sorry, a trawler there caught a sturgeon and brought it into Dingle. Now, they kept it alive in the boat very wisely. But uh, it was proposed to send it to Eamon de Valera, who was president, the equivalent of the monarch here at the time. Now, Dev said no, no, not to give it, send it to him, to give it to the poor Clare nuns in Kenmare. But then, uh, unfortunately, a crowd gathered around the boat and the fellow looking after the sturgeon was listening to people shouting at him and he thought they wanted him to release the fish because they felt it was cruel to keep it. So he threw the sturgeon overboard and it swam away. It would be a lovely specimen in the museum if it were still here. But the curious fact, and I know what Ken thinks of this, was that on the same day, according to the Kerryman, another trawler caught a second sturgeon. And this sturgeon was sent to Billingsgate, was sold to Billingsgate Fish Market, a place you and I visited, Derek. I remember going there with you and recording something some years ago. Now, it was sent there, and I believe it ended up in Buckingham Palace as uh, expected. But the other thing that you've been raising is the, the cartilaginous past. Now, the cartilaginous fish have electrical sensors along the sides of their bodies, so they can detect electric fields 
feels. They can detect the electricity from the muscles of other creatures, other fish. Now, I believe that sturgeon have retained this, but I think, can I clarify this, that the bony fish no longer retain that to any great extent. Is that actually true? No, it's not actually, because um, at one stage, uh, the late Eamon de Butler and myself, we were planning on doing a film on pike and a huge big relative of pike called muscalung. And one of the things that we were going to actually feature in the film was the fact that even in the darkest of opaque water, pike can actually sense, they can actually uh, judge exactly where their prey are. So they share that with the cartilaginous fish, this amazing ability to have these small sensors all over the nose of the pike and down the lateral line and down at the base of the gills as well. So they still have retained that ability to be able to use these sensors. So in reality, what they're able to do is they're able to uh, sense the shape of the prey and then they're able to judge the distance and they're able to attack the prey. There's been some amazing experiments done in Germany with pike where they have actually blindfolded the pike and they were still able to feed quite well. But it's interesting that it would, in parallel with the sharks, that this would have been retained by these, by, by these predators in freshwater. It seems a rather odd thing uh, to be wanting to reintroduce these now because this is an atromous fish. This is a fish that lives in the sea and lives in the water and can deal with the salinity difference of moving from freshwater to seawater and back. Now, two fish that are in big trouble who are of that character are, of course, the salmon and the eel, and they have both declined terribly in the last while. Is it the fact that they have this property, is that a factor in their decline? And why would we try to bring back another one at this critical time? Is that feasible? Well, I think you've really, really put your thumb on, on, on the nub of the problem now. I think we have to be very careful here. I think it's important maybe to think that a sturgeon is certainly not just for Christmas. So if you're going to bring in back creatures that are, you know, up to maybe three metres long into an environment that's completely different to the environment that they originally lived in, where you have lots and lots of different new species of fish, where, as you say, quite rightly, where you have other species that are that, that are under pressure, you have to think about it very carefully. But what we find, I think, uh, all of us in our biological careers is that with the in reintroduction of umbrella species, because of the nature of the demands they have in terms of the environment they need and in terms of the challenges they face, a lot of other creatures actually come along uh, with that protection and improve as a result of that protection. But I don't think anybody is rushing out at the moment to try and reintroduce sturgeon. I think we're obliged to look at the feasibility of doing it. And I think we should be very careful in terms of the way we actually address that and see exactly what would be uh, what would be involved but given the recent redesignation of Atlantic salmon I think we'll be really hard put to try and bring back the populations of our Atlantic salmon over the next uh, four or five decades without the added challenges of trying to introduce another migratory species that very much parallels the sort of biology of salmon. No, I, I think, I don't know whether it is talk about reintroducing it. It's part of the Habitats Directive that we all signed up to in Maastricht that each country would do studies of 
animals that were there once and had become extinct. So we did a survey about the feasibility of restoring the golden eagle, restoring the osprey, restoring the white-tailed sea eagle. This was all seen to be something that would happen and lo and the fullness of time it did. We did a survey on whether it would be feasible or not to restore the wolf mm-hmm. and what conditions would be necessary in Ireland were we to do this. This was the report and it's the same with the sturgeon. Sturgeon were a species around our waters for though for though. It was a native species here once. And so under the Habitats Directive, these reports are required. So this report, like the wolf one, was done to see what the feasibility was. It doesn't mean that they are thinking of bringing them back. No, 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 no. We're only yeah. talking out loud, Aina. No, no, no. Which we're allowed to do. Oh, no, I understand that. But just in case people think, oh, they're thinking of bringing this back and we can't even mind our salmon. No, they're going to be doing this. For the avoidance of doubt, as it's says in all kinds of contracts that you get nowadays for the avoidance of doubt this is part of the requirement under the Habitats Directive that we do studies in each of the European countries about the feasibility of restoring species what were there once and are now extinct and that's what this is all about in the first instance in the first instance